In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but prefer us from Amen. In the fallen Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. So we've got some new faces here, happy to, to see some new faces. I know that there are some folks that I believe maybe spoke to Tim this week about, can you raise your hand if you did? All right, good. Well, welcome, y'all. Uh, I'm a little discombobulated today. I don't, I don't know why. Well, I do know why. It's been really today? busy. So, huh? Just today? Well, I mean, every day I'm getting discombobulated. But I want to welcome y'all. I'm Father Sibley. For those who haven't met me, uh, very happy to have you in our... RCIA Credo Program. Um, for those who are going to be going through the program, RCIA want to know more. This is we meet usually afterwards. This is kind of like the teaching section of the class. Uh, and as I think some of you know, at least by now, you can get stuff online. Did anybody check the weblog yet? I uploaded a little bit. I still got to do more stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm behind schedule. We're going to catch there get there one day. So I appreciate. So I'm giving you a chance to grow in patience by being patient with me. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is sort of move on to our, our third lesson. And so I realize things I could have said, or I should have said, where I want to go with this. We're going to kind of follow the spirit. So over the past two lessons, the times that we've met, sort of the main <coughs> theme has been that of science uh, and faith and how both of those can go together. And, and I realized, as I was explaining to somebody after Mass, that one of the best way I could explain my approach is I am taking the approach of talking to a skeptic. So I'm really trying to talk to a skeptic. It's very easy for me to come up here and say, well, this is what the Catholic Church teaches, A, B, C, D, E. And that might be nice if everybody's like, well, I believe everything the Catholic Church teaches. But I think, as I said before, not everybody believes everything the Catholic Church teaches. And so while I believe in faith, I want to take the approach to respecting reason and looking at some of the more difficult questions. And so that's why we've looked at probably the, the greatest struggle for people in the faith today is how to reconcile faith and science. So we looked over that, that they're not irreconcilable, the value of reason. We looked a little bit about how we can prove God's existence, both from philosophy, but also from science. The fact that we know that the universe has a beginning, that over 13 billion years ago, with the Big Bang, if you remember, was sort of discovered or initiated or explained <coughs> first by a Catholic priest, Father Lemaitre, uh, that it began, that sort of there was nothing, then all of a sudden the Big Bang and the universe began expanding. And how the beginning of the universe, but also the fact that the, the laws in the universe and the fact that the universe is maintained in existence, we can see proves for the existence of God. But what I want to pass to today is probably, well, probably, certainly as a priest of my 18, going on 19 years now, the, the question that I get the most, without a doubt, uh, and in a certain sense I could say the thing that I believe people, Christians, Catholics, struggle with the most, it's not the Big Bang, 
It's not that God would have created the universe. And in a certain sense, it's not even the fact that, yeah, hey, the universe has expanded over the years, that it's grown. What do you think it is? It's the question of how man, or specifically man and woman, came to be. Nobody has a problem. Right, Big Bang came, there's material, and planets formed, and suns formed, and galaxies formed, whatever. Even life on Earth began. But it's how we got to us as human beings is the thing that most people question me about and the thing that I see a lot of individuals struggle with. And so it's not, it's not science as a whole, but it's specifically the theory of evolution. That is the number one thing that I think causes people to freak out. The fact that, according to the theory of evolution, we basically evolved from apes, or even more specifically, we evolved from like amoebas and microbes, and over time, we became, you know, fish and whatnot, and we evolved as the human creature. People have a difficult time with that. Now granted, throughout history, maybe you've seen different ideas about evolution, people have noticed things, but it was really in the, the uh, 19th century, close the door, Charles Darwin, you know, wrote The Origin of Species and came up generally with the theory of evolution, which I guess in a certain sense was radical then, and over the course of the past 150 years, it is still considered very, very radical. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I'm sure most of you in here, at some point in your life or academic career, have heard or know the basics of evolution. Is that correct? Has anyone never heard the term natural selection? Please raise your hand. Okay, good. I'm glad. So, I mean, I can get into like a little bit of what evolution is, but I think we know the fact that life began very primitive and through the course of millions upon millions of years, if not billions of years, first life began, there were mutations, and things begin to grow, and over the centuries, the millennia, the eons, we have different life forms develop, uh, and ultimately, we end up with uh, natural selection, certain ones dying off, certain other ones. Father Pelsey was very loquacious today, it appears. Huh? We have to talk about that. Thursdays are not the time for loquacity, but brevity. I'm the only one allowed to be loquacious and talkative on, on Thursday. So you're going to have to talk, we'll come to Jesus about that. For those who are joining, we're, we're talking about evolution. And of course, you know, natural selection and this idea that throughout, throughout the, the, the the chain of life and the growth of life over the years, basically random things happen that allowed us to get where we are. The different species evolved to adapt, and of course humans also got to this point. Without getting into all the details of macro versus micro evolution, without getting into all the things about where's the missing link, or all these kind of stuff, or the scientific understanding, Evolution as a whole is, in the scientific community, universally accepted. I mean, there may be a, a couple of people here or there that don't accept it. 
today I, I got uh, some, some emails from people who are having a hard time accepting it. But the truth is, there are individuals who object to it. Now, I'm saying this right now for the record for all of you, is I'm not an expert enough to know about evolution. I know that there are people who will dispute certain areas, but I'm talking about overall as a whole, evolution is generally accepted. However, there are certain Christians, and maybe non-Christians too, who object. The main sort of objection is that evolution is too atheistic. Now, here we have a reason, not so much why, I mean, creation came, yeah, to a certain degree, where the animals came, but really humans. Where's God in all of this? Doesn't God have a part to play? Because evolution says, according to natural selection, it's completely random, there's chance, random genetic mutations, and that God does not have a part of it. But really in the Christian community, at least from my experience, as much as people may want to posit different arguments, this or that, the real crucial issue, it comes from what? It's rooted in what? Genesis chapter 1 to 3. The creation stories that we see in Scripture. Those, those seem to be taken. taken. Whoever's there can sit elsewhere. Uh, it's Genesis 1 to 3. There's the Bible. The Bible says the earth is created in six days. Some will say, well, that means, I mean, uh, six days. That means that the earth can't be however many millions or billions of years old. God created man out of the earth. There's no way we came from monkeys. There's no way. And it comes from a very literal, fundamentalist <coughs> reading of Scripture. And we're going to get into that more next week. There's this idea that the Bible says we believe it at face value. The Bible says that we, we came from dirt, that God walked in the Garden of Eden, and all this kind of stuff, we can't accept it. But specifically because people have a difficult time because it calls into question the dignity of the human person. Well, we're not special if we're just a product of evolution. You know, what about God? What about the soul? What about all these different things? Because people struggle, they can't, they can't accept it. Science shows that humans First came about, I think, 3 million years ago, Homo sapiens, about 200,000 years ago. We have a fossil record. Uh, you can read all the stuff you want about anthropology and about archaeology and whatnot. And so there's a lot of evidence there, it seems, in the ground for evolution, from the genetic record for evolution, from looking at nature. But yet it seems the Bible says something different. How do we go and we deal with that? Have y'all ever heard this or struggled with this? I mean, I don't know if it's as big of a problem in the Catholic Church, but it certainly is a problem in other denominations. How to deal with reconciling what we believe in Scripture along with what we know from science, particularly focused on where we as humans came from. All right? And so what we want to look at, though, is evolution, though, but what, what do Catholics believe about this? What does the Catholic Church teach about it? Again, I'm not going to, at least in here, pass out a bunch of documents to tell you, well, Pope so-and-so said this, or Pope so-and-so said that. But basically this, the Catholic Church, as we're going to see next week, because we are not fundamentalists, and we do not take 
all the Bible completely literally, and because we use reason and we value science, the church is not opposed to evolution, okay? You can read the, the sort of the definitive document, Humani Generis from Pius XII, it gets into that and says, yes, it's accepted to believe in evolution. There's certain conditions that need to be in there that we need to learn to accept and learn to understand. But basically, we have no problem with evolution. And, and John Paul II said it in 1996 in one of his speeches. Benedict has written on it extensively in different parts. But generally, we can talk about how, how we explain evolution. We can give all kinds of different terms about how to reconcile it with the belief in a creator. But in general, it sure seems that the scientific record community proves that evolution is acceptable. And so even though maybe the, the catechism doesn't go into all kinds of explanations, and there may be certain aspects of evolution that we might disagree with or we may not understand, it, it's something we can accept with certain conditions. The main condition being is we still believe in a God who is a creator and through evolution, whether or not he intervened in little different parts or not, led to the development of the human person. And there came a point when he would have put the soul in the, the first man or the first woman, and they would have become, I guess in a certain sense, responsible for their actions. What that looked like, I got no idea. I wasn't there. I just wasn't. And there are a lot of other questions that maybe if we have time towards the end, we can get into. But the fact of the matter is, is you can believe in scripture, you can believe in science, you can believe in evolution. Now, there can be all kinds of objections. Well, some will say, well, I believe in, in, in microevolution, like, you know, some, like the, 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 the hands can develop into claws or something, or the claws can develop into hands versus macroevolution, macro how one species can change into another species. Again, I think that we can show that there are a lot of different species of birds, and birds come from dinosaurs, and, and we can handle that, you know. Some people may not, but again, we're not really here to get so much into the science. Some have a problem with, okay, it doesn't seem, it's random, well there needs to be order, God needs to be directing it. So we have this idea of intelligent design that some people will put together or put forth. And then others will make the argument, you know, well, well where's the missing link? That we go from humans who are not rational creatures to those who were. And there are all kinds of books. You can read all kinds of stuff and watch movies on this. But the fact of the matter is, is that Catholics, the church accepts this. And we're still studying more. We're going to understand it. I can tell you personally, and this is where most of you may walk out, I, I'm not an expert, but what I know about evolution, I've got no problem with it, and I have no problem with natural selection. I love saying it shock people. I, what's the big deal? I mean, what if the Lord says, I'm just let things kind of go, I'll intervene here and there, and allow natural selection to happen. I got no problem with it. And I, I think I'm a pretty strong believer. Granted, it may be challenging to some people's faith, but I think that it is something that is reasonable and acceptable. Now, you don't have to accept it necessarily. It's not a matter of faith, but I still believe in God and I believe in natural selection. It generally doesn't matter to me. But this is the point that I want to make and, and I want to drive this home. 
but because you're going to see it's where the rest of our discussion is going to kind of go. When people talk about having a problem with the Bible or having a problem with evolution, you can make all the scientific arguments you want, and we can get into that kind of debate. We can get into that argument about this aspect of evolution or that aspect of evolution, but that's not the real problem. From what I've found in my own studies and my reasoning with people, the issue isn't that evolution doesn't reconcile with faith or evolution doesn't reconcile with the Bible, it can't be reconciled. It's the problem people don't understand how to read the Bible, specifically the first 11, specifically even more the first three chapters of Genesis. And so whenever I talk about this, and I do a fair amount, this talk that I, I have a talk that I give, which is probably the most popular talk that I give. Uh, in fact, it's so popular, I'm going to be doing it as a Linton series. We're going to focus for six weeks on Genesis 1 to 3. Not so much from a faith perspective, but from an historical, literary, critical perspective. And there are a lot of ways we can look at Scripture. We're going to look at that next week. But this is the real issue, is that so often Christians and Catholics, they don't approach Genesis 1 to 3 properly. Maybe they've never been taught, or maybe if they were taught, they forgot about it. I got no idea. But that's what the core of what I want to look at today is. Even though we're going to be looking at Scripture next week much more in depth, it sort of leaves that segue for us to understand and accept the nature of creation, the dignity of the human person, of who we are, but a proper understanding of Scripture, okay? So this is my question. If you already heard me give this talk before, please do not respond. Let's make it fun. Or you can respond, but just don't tell me you know the answer. In the Bible, Genesis, was man, human beings, created before animals, or were animals created before human beings? Man, man, woman, whatever you want to call it. Who wants to volunteer that humans were created first? Raise your hand. This is not a true question. It's not really a true question, is it? Who's created first? Who says, who says plants were created first? Or animals, okay? Who says man was created first? Okay. And so, usually I would get into more discussion about this, but yeah, the truth is, not a trick question, because all of you are right, and all of you are wrong. All of you are right, and all of you are wrong. The truth is, and again, let's see how many people knew this verse, didn't know this, that there are actually two creation stories in Genesis. Actually, there are a lot more creation stories in the Bible, in the Psalms, and all that kind of stuff, which we're not going to get to right now. So they're basically, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they're two creation stories. One of them has the animals created before man, and the other one has man created before the animals. These are written by two different authors at two different times, for two different purposes, for two different audiences. Have you all ever heard that? Who has not heard or did not know that there were two different creation stories, raise your hand. Okay. Most everyone knew then, correct? Or you've heard me talk about it enough. Good. Yeah. There are two creation stories. And again, maybe I'm beating a dead horse here. But the fact is that we have got to, if we take the Bible literally, again, there are certain parts we will take literally, but we take Genesis 1, 2, and 3 literally, 
can't. Because the only way you can sort of explain it is, well, God created the world, and then he destroyed it, then he started again. Or created another world after the universe imploded. I mean, whatever you want to say. They are contradictory because they were written by two different authors at two different times. Now, what I'm going to do is as briefly as I possibly can explain to you what we call the four sources theory. Now, in scripture scholarship, as Heather will say, there are people who can debate this, who can argue this. But I'm not, for the sake of brevity and for the sake of looking at this, I don't think that a lot of, many people will argue that there are different sources in at least the first chapters of Genesis. And so the theory goes like this, is that in, to a great degree, the first few books of the Old Testament, but we're going to look at Genesis at least one, two, and three, Genesis one was written by an author called, they call him P, or Priestly. We'll talk about that why in a bit. Genesis 2-3 was written by the J author, which is called Yahweh. J and Jer, is a German theory. And so J is the beginning of Yahweh in German, that's what they called that. Two different stories that at some point were sort of put together. And do they, on the surface, contradict each other? Yes, they do. But when you sort of push aside the theory of evolution, because when they were writing this, they had no idea about evolution, they didn't care about any of that kind of stuff. When you push that aside and try to look at the text itself, then all of a sudden things begin to make sense. We're going to talk about this more next time, but when you approach scripture, they're different, we call senses of scripture, ways to approach it. You can try to look for a spiritual meaning, you can look for a moral meaning, you can look for it pointing to heaven. But the base <coughs> scripture, the base thing that we've got to start with is what we call the literal meaning, the literal sense. Now you just said, Father, don't take the, the, the Genesis 1, 2, 3 literally. Well, that's not what I mean. Literal sense is what the author intended. What did the author, the sacred author, who was inspired by God, intend when he wrote whatever passage from Scripture? And so it's possible to read Scripture as the Word of God, and we realize it's inspired. It's also possible to read it as literature and to use tools of literary criticism that you use in your normal history or English department to analyze the text. And it's also possible to use that along with faith in order to get a fuller understanding of Scripture. We're going to again look at that more next time of how Catholics approach Scripture, of how we read the Bible. But when it comes to these two, the theory is generally we have two different authors, two different stories. So what I want to do as briefly as I possibly can, and without using any videos, even though I'm going to point to some resources you get online, is to look at the origins of these scripture passages from an historical and literary perspective. To try to understand who the author was, when they wrote it, why they wrote it. To take a very literal sense, and then maybe we'll see a little bit of the symbolic sense. All right? Because we understand, one of the biggest problems is, is if we approach scripture without looking at what we call the different genres, the different genres of scripture, a general genre is a writer. 
And when I talk about this, and again, we're going to see it more uh, in the next time, it's kind of like, didn't know where to begin with this, because I didn't want to jump the gun on my scripture passage, uh, looking at it. There are different ways of interpreting different genres of scripture, or literature. So let's say that I have one historical event. Let's say that we have um, uh, a, war, a battle and war that happens. Well, one person who lived it writes about the battle as an autobiography. Another, a hundred years later, takes it and writes an historical account. One person makes a play into it to write about it. The other person makes a poem about it. Are they all describing the same event? Yeah, they are. But you got four separate genres. They're going to write things in different ways in order to communicate different messages. And so the problem would be is if you took the poem and you tried to read it like a history book, you're going to completely miss the message. And so what happens is whenever we don't pay attention to the literal meaning of Scripture, and again, remember the Bible is like a, a library of all these different readings and passages, if we don't pay attention to the literal meaning and try to understand the genre and what the author was intended, but try to read it all like history, like we want to read a history book if you go to Barnes & Noble and pick it up, or if everybody goes to Barnes & Noble, you probably just buy it on Amazon, you're going to get it all wrong. Not only because it wasn't written as history, A, but B, people 1,500 years ago, 2,500 years ago, didn't have the same understanding of scripture, I mean, of, of history that we do. They weren't as interested in details and facts, but rather how God was acting through history, at least this is the scriptural passage. And so if we look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the literary genre is myth. And so when people hear that today, again, this is why it's like words are so important and understanding them are so important. Oh, Father said that the Bible was a myth. No, I didn't say that. I said that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are myths, specifically creation myths. Now, I talked about it last week, about the importance of mythology. For, for all cultures, but particularly for primitive cultures, that they have myths to explain different things, but the origins of things. Every major culture has a creation myth. All major religions do. Even the Scientologists have made their own creation myth. Xena the alien warlord blowing up all the body Ketons, or body Ketons. You can go learn all about that. That's a funny story. The time I went to the Scientology headquarters, and wanted to, to know their creation myth. I got kicked out. <laughs> I got escorted out of the Scientology headquarters. Dropping volcanoes, right? Yeah, they're dropping, he was dropping H-bombs and volcanoes. Yeah. Anyhow, that's, that, I'll tell that story at Halloween one day. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But the creation myths. But guess what? Israel had creation myths. And the myth, though, we think it's false. No. I said, that's a myth. That's not true. For primitive cultures, myths were very true. But they weren't history. They were there to explain deeper truths about where creation come from, about what the purpose of certain things were, about the dignity of the human person. And these myths can be seen as written within a historical context. All right? So we're going to be talking about creation myths, just like the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians and the Sumerians and the Egyptians. They all had creation myths. And in fact, you'll see, as we're going to try to explain, that Israel's creation myths were influenced to some degree 
by the Babylonian myths. We've only really come to understand that, let's say, in the course of the past 200 years, because we've gotten our hands on some of these myths, and there are still people who can argue and dispute about how it's applied, but it's generally accepted that this is a valid sound interpretation. All right? So the first is Genesis 1 to 2, even though it kind of, the way we number it, leaks over a little bit to Genesis, uh, the, the next part, Genesis uh, 2 1 or 2 2. We believe that it was written by what we call the priestly author. Priestly author is this person would have been a priest. And the time that we date this is usually to the sixth, most scholars say, sixth century. BC. After the exile, and we'll talk maybe a little bit about that when we look at salvation history, is when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and sent everybody in for about 40 years into exile, into Babylon. And they sent the priest there also. Well, while they were there, as you can imagine, you've got two generations of people living amongst pagans. As you can see some of the prophets were there at the time saying, you people better watch it. Don't be interbreeding with these people the Babylonians. But what happened was, we believe, they would also come encounter to encounter the different Babylonian myths. And many of them maybe started believing it. And the priests who are the ones, of course, responsible for the, the well-being or the knowledge or the faith of the people, we're like, eh, eh, that's not good. It's not what we believe. And so God would have inspired, even though we're going to talk about what inspiration is a little bit later on, inspired the author to come up with his own myth, drawing from other sources, but basically responding to the Babylonian myth. They say there's a lot of stuff in that myth that's not true. All right? And so what we believe is the myth that is the most well-known of the one Babylonian myth is called the Enuma Elish. And this dates well before uh, the time of the priestly source. And I'm going to put some videos that I encourage you to watch that kind of talk about what the Enuma Elish is. We only found the text about 150 years ago. Heather is the biblical scholar of and so, maybe she, Heather has a degree in biblical scholarship. I'm moral theology, so you can correct me if I get anything wrong. And so basically, the story goes, and this is the Babylonian myth, that there were these gods, and, you know, back in the day, all these different pagans, these gods would get in fights with each other all the time, and also like to sleep with each other and do all this kind of stuff. And basically, there was this snake god, serpent god, named Tiamut, who was terrorizing everybody. There's some predating story to this, but I'm not going to get into that. And then this main god, Ai, wasn't it? I forget the Ai god, whatever, the main god, calls this other warrior god-type guy called Marduk to come and fight Tiamut. And he kills Tiamut, and basically from the body of Tiamut creates the world, the, the heavens and the, the, the world and all that. 
And then later on, there, Marduk basically becomes the main god, and there's some more fighting, and then the other gods are mad, and humans are created, and then there's all this fighting and rebelling, and the humans are created from like the blood of, of Tiamat, the blood of this dragon serpent thing. I'm not giving you all the details. I didn't have time to go back and review my Anuma Elish, but I think you basically got, got the, the, the message here. And so people begin believing this pagan myth. And so what happens is, is you have the priestly myth written in a certain sense to respond to it. And so we all know Genesis. There's God. There are not a lot of gods. There's only one God, all right? And there's nothing before. There's nothing. <clears throat> Even though, well, we won't get into these details. But there's nothing. So unlike the Enumelish or the pagan myths, where these gods basically kind of like hung out all the time and they ran around with each other, there's only one god. And he creates things over the course of seven days. If you read it, the reason they call it the priestly source is so ordered and so structured. And in fact, you can start, it's like a temple, actually. The creation is like a temple. But it's art and structured. There's not a lot of anthropomorphic language. There's not all kinds of stuff. It's very structured, very ordered, almost like a liturgical language would be. And so there's one God. And guess where the world comes from, creation comes from? It doesn't come from the blood of a demon or a dragon. It comes from nothing. It also doesn't have him sleeping with all these other gods or killing all these other gods. But it comes from reason and order. And creation is good. It doesn't come from violence and strife. The planets and the heavens are not gods. Because in Enuma Elish, they were. They're creatures. In fact, Tiamut is not even a god. The reference to the, the, the water beasts that are created. It's in God, the one God, Yahweh, created them and put them in the water. And so, and then man ultimately is created. He's created good in the image and likeness of God, who's got control, who's reason, who's rational. So radically different than this pagan myth. One of the people who writes the best about this is Pope Benedict. And the book that I'm going to suggest is called In the Beginning. It's a series of homilies he wrote in 81, I think, or 82, basically explaining Genesis. Very, very easy. Now he very, very briefly goes over this, but he kind of gives that explanation. I'm going to put that online for you all to be able to see and to be able to read. But one of the interesting things to notice about that passage, and this is where I'm going to really need my glasses, is if you take your Bible, and I should have copied this for you, but I didn't, and you look at it, I'm going to put my glasses on, I have like super small Bible here. So did you bring your Bible? You did. Bibles always have it, a good thing to bring in your catechism class. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the water. So every time you see that, you're going to see the word God. But if you pass into the second story, this is another evidence of a different author, all of a sudden you're going to start seeing Lord 
but all in caps. Have you ever noticed that? I preached on this this summer. The Lord is always in caps. Why? It's because they're using two separate words. This is the word, the word Elohim. Remember the Bible? What does it in English? Translated. The word Elohim, which is sort of like the formal name. It's not God's personal name. And so this Lord is Yahweh. But in English, as we'll see in a second, we translate it as Lord and not directly as Yahweh because for the Jews, remember, you do not take the Lord's name in vain. Even writing his name down was taking it in vain. And so they wouldn't write it down. And so us in the English translation will do this, but Lord. And so the Yahweh, as we'll see, used Yahweh, and Elohim, the priestly source, arguably out of respect for the name of Yahweh, because it was written, we believe, probably later than the Yahweh, didn't use Yahweh. They used Elohim. Although, later on, the priestly source does begin to use Yahweh once his name is revealed, but we're not going to get into all that at all. If you want to learn more about that, go to your Bible Bible class. So you have the Anuma Elish responding here. It's the priestly source who said, listen, God inspired that, that author. Hey, y'all, I'm going to inspire you to create this new myth to teach a deeper truth about who I am, about the goodness of creation, about the dignity of the human person, as opposed to the Anuma Elish. And so one of the videos I'm going to put out is going to really show how Genesis 1 was influenced by the Elish. And the more you study it, the more you understand it, the easier it will become for you then to see what the literal sense of Genesis 1 is. God takes the human author who is trying to respond to the historical situation and inspires them to write this first, this first uh, priestly source. But the truth is, as you pass the second one, most scholars will say, even if you can't exactly date it, people argue all the time, isn't that correct, Heather, about when it was, yeah. was written before, arguably, this one, it's older. And one of the reasons they say it's older is because Yahweh is still used. If it was written later, they would have gotten rid of the name. But also, it's much more anthropomorphic in the way they describe God. It's much more of a story, more of a narrative. Arguably, a more primitive culture would have written that. Now, granted, there could be debates about that, but it would have been written before, and then arguably the priestly sources went after would have put them together. And so it is a myth, a myth. But trying to teach some deeper <coughs> truths about creation, about God, and about humanity. And we believe that it was influenced by or responds to a number of different myths. I'm not gonna get into a lot of that. Creation myths, Babylonian myths they would have encountered. One of them being Gilgamesh. You all ever heard of the, 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 the myth of Gilgamesh? Yeah, so Gilgamesh, you can read about it. The tablet, the, 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 the Gilgamesh was an historical figure, dates back to 2700 BC. Tablets of the Gilgamesh epic, which many of you may have read in school, 
uh, were found again in the 19th century. Uh, and basically the way it goes is that Gilgamesh is the king of this city called Uruk, or I have my notes written down, but I can't remember all these weird pagan myths all the time, who's just a jerk, <coughs> and the people complain to the gods, because there are a number of gods, and so the gods create Enkidu, it's a weird name, but it's E-N-K-I-D-U, who's kind of like the double of Gilgamesh, a second man, who's kind of a wild man, created from clay, as friends of the animals, and then Gilgamesh goes to like tempt, this is a prostitute, tempt and tame Enkidu, and Enkidu sort of is given sexuality and not knowledge, then somehow because he becomes sexual, he ends up going into the city and does battle with Gilgamesh. And the, the epic continues, and then Gilgamesh goes looking for immortality. And he finds this wise man who gives him the plant of the heartbeat uh, that will grant him immortality. Um, but instead of him eating it, a snake eats it, and the snake sheds the skin. This is all kinds of crazy stuff. But basically, you can see the different themes. You can also see another, the legend of Adapa, that seems to be an influence. And I'll put all this stuff online. Adapa was a mortal man from a godly lineage, the son of Ea, that's the god, the god of wisdom. Adapa broke the wings of Ninil, the south wind, who had overturned his fishing boat and was called to account before the great god Anu. Ea, his patron god, warned him to apologize humbly for his actions, but not to partake of food or drink while he was in heaven, as it would be the food of death. <coughs> Anu, impressed by Adapa's sincerity, offered instead the food of immortality, but Adapa heeded the other gods' advice. Ea refused and this missed the chance for immortality that would have been. So he was tricked out of immortality. So again, you can kind of see some of the themes. Remember Genesis 2 is man and woman created, the animals are created, man's created, the animals are created, then the woman, and the snake comes and seduces them, uh, and they lose out on immortality. There's also another pagan myth dating, I think, from the 17th century BC, the myth of Atrahasis, um, which has sort of a flood story in it, which we're not going to have a chance to get into, but also these creatures that are created as workers from clay, uh, they're going to be seven male and seven female, all kinds of crazy stuff that you can go look up. But ultimately, pagan myths that the second creation story tries to respond to, to be able to explain a lot of, of what those myths are about or refute them, but also to a certain degree, they took some of the sources of the snake and the, the clay and whatnot, but the Lord would inspire the author to write it in a way that responds to those pagan myths. But ultimately, most scholars will say that Genesis 2 and 3, unlike Genesis 1, was what we call etiological. A lot of myths are etiological, which are there to explain the origins of things. Myths often do that, like Aesop's fables or, or whatever, why things are. So what do you think Genesis 2 and 3? Talks about why there's enmity between man and women, why women 
have pain when they're born, why snakes crawl on the ground, why we sweat when we work, why we wear clothes, the origins of shame, the origins of death, and all this different kind of stuff. Sexual difference, these different sort of re realities. And so, it but it tells a lot of deep truths that we can see, particularly about creation, about particularly the human person and the meaning of sexual difference. Again, if I had more time, I would get into a lot more detail about um, Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Because one of the big things that explains how sin came into the world, what we call original sin, the fallenness of human nature, the fallenness of man. But ultimately, what I think is key, and what I want to sort of point to, is what, besides the dignity of creation, what does Genesis 2 and 3 and 1 really focus on? It focuses on the uniqueness and the dignity of the human person. And we're going to look a lot more at who man is a little bit later on. But it clearly gives us the basis of God revealing that man has a body and soul, the body is good, that we have reason to know the truth. Hey, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You better not eat of that. We have a will, the freedom to choose, and the freedom to choose against God, that man created as male and female, meant for communion in the image and likeness of God, and we're ultimately meant for immortality. That's what we're meant for. Now granted, we can get into the spiritual sense of this, we just simply don't have time. But the apex of creation is humanity, is man and woman. Which I think is part of the, one of the reasons a lot of people have an issue with evolution. If evolution didn't touch humanity, but explain why birds and lizards and whatever evolved, most people wouldn't care. Because it seems to call into question the dignity of the human person, I think there are a number of people who do care and have a problem with it. But for me, if you understand, it's not trying to be an historical document. It's not trying to refute science. It's got nothing to do with science. It's trying, using myths, to tell deeper truths and are situated in a deeper historical context. Then all of a sudden, the problems with evolution, at least for me, fall away. You can disagree with evolution all you want. You can have your own scientific problems, but if you understand scripture, particularly Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in the proper way, from a proper literal sense, and to see how God was inspiring the authors to teach us about the goodness of creation and about the dignity and purpose of humanity, then guess what? It really, all this stuff, at least in my opinion, doesn't matter. I don't understand why people have a problem with us coming from apes but when the Bible tells you you come from dirt, all of a sudden that's a problem. <laughs> I can't take it that came from apes. The Bible tells you came from dirt. What's the deal? What's the issue? So the real issue, though, is coming up or having a more mature understanding of Scripture and a way of understanding inspiration and revelation. That's what we're going to look at, sort of the second part of our talk today. We're going to take a little break. Uh, and let y'all mill around a little bit. You can grab some water, grab some snacks, and then we'll pass on to the next part. So the important thing is here is understanding creation from a Catholic perspective and the dignity of the human person is the apex of creation and it's not 
necessarily or at all in opposition to what we know from science and from evolution. But what we're going to look at next, when we come back, is the other thing that I think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 tells us about, is that, particularly 2 and 3, that we have a God who is interested and willing to and does reveal himself to us and wants to know us and wants to have communion with us. This is something that we cannot know from philosophy, that we can't just know from straight reasoning and becomes the real launching board for us for really getting into faith and understanding what the Bible is and ultimately who Jesus are, who Jesus is, and what the purpose of creation and salvation is. So we'll take a little break. It's uh, 6.53. Why don't we try to come back for 7 o'clock? That sounds good? All right. So why don't we go ahead and uh, begin again. As you know, I've got a, I have mass today, so I'm going to end up having to end at about 7.45 or so. Uh, and then those who are, are staying for RCIA and for the deeper formation uh, will be staying. So, I was talking to, to Heather, who's on our team. She was talking about something I remember in seminary, but I don't remember too much from seminary. Uh, and St. Thomas Aquinas, in his Summa Theologiae, his very, very first question, he deals with the topic of sacred doctrine, of basically studying theology. And it gets to the point, there's an answer in there about sort of the purpose of revelation, of why God reveals himself. And we've already looked at what we can know about God from philosophy, from studying creation. We can derive certain characteristics from him, which we didn't get into a lot. Why do we know God's omnipotent? Why do we know he's omniscient? Why do we know he's eternal? We, not, we, we know that from philosophy, and then again, I don't have time to get into a lot of that. Would y'all mind closing the door again? But Thomas will say that the truth is philosophy can only get us so far, can only get us to a certain understanding of God and the nature of creation, that ultimately God needs to reveal himself because we can only get so far, A, and B, we might get it wrong because our human brain is not perfect. And so this is where we really start getting into theology here. I, I really, it was a difficult choice for me. Should I start with Revelation? Should I start with the Bible? Should I start with creation? And I chose to do it this way because it's the biggest controversial question that I at least get as a priest. And it gives me a good way to launch into Revelation, even though I realize I still got to explain the nature of God, and I really still need to explain more about the nature of the human person, but at least I can say that we can understand the human person as at the center of creation, and then we're going to look at salvation history, we realize, oops, something went wrong, and how do we address that? But the fact is, it's the topic of Revelation of God revealing himself to his creatures, that's the most important. And I thought looking at the first chapters of scripture would be the best way to do that. Why? Because we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. 
Certainly, God reveals himself through creation. He can reveal himself in a number of different ways. But for Christians, this is sort of like the, the core, the most condensed form that we can hold in our hands of revelation. It is the word of God. So next week when we come, we're going to look and try to get a Catholic understanding of Scripture, really, which I'm going to kind of sum it up. Catholics are a people of the Word, not of the book. The book is important, but guess what? A long period of time when most people couldn't read. You didn't have books. So people could still come to know the Gospel. And so we're going to come to look at that a little bit later on. But the truth is, is... Scripture teaches us, or Revelation teaches us, as we saw, that while we can use philosophy to understand God and his existence and his power and his omnipotence and his omniscience, that we do not believe in an impersonal God. Even though we may be tempted to this deistic belief that, okay, God created creation, and he moves back, and he just kind of lets things go. But as Christians, and the Jews before, believes that God wants to be and is intimately involved in history. Not as like the Greek gods were, trying to sleep with women and fighting people and appearing as a swan and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. There's a purpose for his revelation. There's a purpose for him appearing and manifesting himself, and we're going to get into that next time. But that God has, who is the creator, chosen to reveal himself. Now, as we kind of saw last time, we can say in a certain sense, creation reveals God. The fact that we realize that creation is here and it doesn't have to be reveals that God is a gift. It reveals that our life is a gift. It reveals a lot about his nature because he didn't have to. It also shows that he's free. He can make his own decision. But we're going to have to get into deeper, we're going to see at the end, exactly why he does. So God reveals... He's created creation, but within creation, he's chose to intervene, to reveal not only the meaning and purpose of creation, to reveal to us who we are and our dignity, to reveal his plan, as we're going to talk about with Jesus, his plan to save us. But most importantly, what does God, and we're using the, the big thing, God, not Yahweh, what is the big thing that he reveals? What's the big thing that he reveals? True. It's part of it. Himself. Himself. That's the whole verse. There's only so much we can know about God. So he's revealing himself to us. And yeah, partially we're revealing his love. But he's revealing himself. And this is sort of the core of Revelation. All of what we're going to be studying in the Bible, in tradition, in creation, 
in Jesus, ultimately, is God telling us about himself. And, in doing so, telling us about who we are in relationship to him. But what's interesting, and this for me is, I'll get a little poetic here, maybe, or maybe prosaic, depends on how you want to look at it. God could have let us evolve to a certain point, and then appeared in the heavens and said, everybody, I want you to get a pen and some paper, and I want you to start writing down, I'm going to tell you about myself. I'm eternal, I'm omniscient, I love you, I do all these kind of stuff, check you later. All right, just make sure you can tell people about. But that's not how he chose to do it. He didn't choose to reveal a bunch of facts about himself, but in a certain sense, as we'll see, he chose to reveal the very core of his being, and in fact, chose to give of himself in a very, very radical way. But yet, we as humans can know this and understand it. Because when he reveals, he's not just revealing to space. He's not revealing himself to like, you know, Alpha Centauri. He's revealing to people who can receive revelation. And that would be humans. Now arguably, maybe there are aliens out there. Maybe they can, if they're reasonable, they can receive revelation too. But he wants to communicate to us who he is, who we are, and what the purpose of life is. And that's something very profound. But he does it throughout history, and he does it very, very gradually. So for those of you who are parents, and, and I think this is so crucial for us to understand, you, in a certain sense, if we're going to use this metaphor, you, to your kids, over time, you reveal a lot to them about creation, about the world, about right and wrong, about who they are, about who you are. But when you begin to reveal these things to them, do you sit down and explain like the theory of relativity to a two-year-old? Do you talk about the morality of euthanasia to a four-year-old? No, you don't. You understand that that child has a limited capacity, and as the child gets older, his or her ability to grasp revelation grows, correct? And so in a certain sense, the Lord, over the period of salvation history, or the period where was chosen to reveal himself to us gradually, knowing that, hey, maybe primitive man, who was originally polytheist, and they were out killing each other and doing all kinds of weird, crazy stuff, wasn't ready for the whole truth. Couldn't grasp it. So one of the great things about Revelation, at least in my perspective, is that he condescends to man. I'm going to take you where you're at. Granted, in a certain sense, he does lift us up through grace so that we can understand. But he takes us where we're at, and he begins to reveal himself. That's what we're going to look at through salvation history. And a lot of what we know about him, he communicates to people who can only understand in a certain way. But he reveals himself, particularly in the history of the Old Testament to Israel, 
But that revelation culminates in what? Jesus, the incarnation, who is, as we talked about last week, the Logos, the Word made flesh. The Word made flesh. And so this idea of the Logos means revelation. He's revealing himself to us. He's speaking to us. And he uses human language. He uses creative realities to be able to communicate his plan to us. Now, as Catholics, we believe that Christ is the height of revelation, but that what we call public revelation, the revelation of God's plan, who we are, actually ends in the death of the last apostle. Why? Because we believe the New Testament was written after Jesus, and that the authors of the New Testament were indeed inspired. And we're going to talk about how the Bible came to be and what the purpose of the Bible is. But it's him revealing himself to us, but he reveals himself, as I said, to humans. He doesn't just give facts, but he reveals himself we focus on scripture using a story. A story, a narrative, symbols, created realities. And the Bible is, a, there are laws in here and there are rules in here, but what is the most of the Bible? It's a lot of stories. It's a narrative, the narrative of a people as he's revealing himself. And part of what, what makes me think about this is that. I'm not finished with the book, even though I really, really like what I've read so far by this lady named Holly Ardway. And she is a convert from Baptist to atheist to Catholicism. Her, her book is out there that you can read about her conversion. But this is called Apologetics in the Christian Imagination. She teaches at Houston Baptist, and she teaches literature and myth, particularly through like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. She's a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Um, but talks about how we can explain the Christian faith and how one of the problems of the Christian faith is that people do today is they just want to dump a bunch of facts on people. But we as a culture, particularly as culture, we don't have the context or the meaning for a lot of what is being told us. And so what she says is we have facts, but we lack imagination. And the way that some of the great in scripture, Jesus, but some of the other great evangelist apologists would use stories to be able to, to communicate different truths about salvation that capture the imagination of people rather than just giving facts. She's not saying that you, you don't give facts, or you don't need to give facts, you need to, but that apologetics or understanding the faith is something much deeper and something more complex. I'm gonna probably take a, a chapter or page or two of that and put it online too. But if we understand that that's the best way to communicate the faith, where do we learn it? We really learn it from God who chooses to reveal himself in history, reveal himself through stories, through narratives, through the myths, to communicate deeper truths. And it's something that shows, as I said, that he's communicating to us that there is the condescension of God speaking to us. But here's the truth, and this goes back to understanding, I think, the dignity of the human person, is that we have the ability 
to receive God's word. We have the ability, even without a limited capacity, to understand it, to integrate it, and to pass from the logos to the dia logos, the dialogue. We can speak back to him. We can understand who he was or who he is. There can be this communication. It takes a lot of grace. It takes a lot of effort. But there's the ability to communicate with God. And so in a certain sense, all of history, for once God began to reveal himself to us, and we understood it and spoke back to him, that becomes a dialogue. You can even say a love story if you want. That's what some people will say. The Bible is a love story of God revealing his love for us, us receiving that and speaking back to him. One of the interesting things, just sort of I can say as an aside, that Ratzinger writes that he says, if we believe in evolution, that when primitive man passed to rational man and God would possibly infuse the soul, He's just offering this hypothesis, is whenever that first man was able to conceive in his mind of the concept of God. Like, wow, this concept of God, even if it wouldn't be fully developed, he can understand in his mind God. But so he can have that. Maybe primitive man began religion and praying in order to appease the gods. We talked a little bit about that. But the fact of the matter is, regardless, if he is revealed, if man understands it, we still, then, he has the capacity to understand God, then with the soul infused, he has the ability to receive God. So you can have the dialogue, but really salvation history is, is about God speaking and the dialogue, but giving and us receiving and giving ourselves back. That's what salvation history is really all about. And so we can have revelation, but just like in that relationship or that dialogue, you can have the essential words and know the person, but over time and over history, you get to know the person better. Does that make sense? So I can know Heather. We're friends. I've been knowing Heather for about six years now, I think. So we're friends. I think I know Heather. I don't fully know Heather, but guess what? Over time, as we dialogue, the basic truths I know about her, I may learn some new things, but really it's like I'm going deeper in the well. I have what I know about her, but I'm understanding more about her. I'm looking at it from a different perspective. And that comes only through dialogue and through relationship. And so, as God chooses to reveal himself to us, we have the core essential of revelation, whether it be Jesus or the dogmas or the teachings of the church and all these different types of things. And granted, maybe revelation stops with the, it does stop with the last apostle. But does it mean all of a sudden we're done? Throughout history now, that dialogue continues. We begin to explore and understand who Jesus is. As John of the Cross talks about, you go deeper in the mind and deep pockets of riches, new knowledge that is a deepened understanding of what was revealed to us. And so God can reveal himself as justice or as love or as eternal. And we understand that basic principle, but over time, as we pray, as we dialogue, guess what? We understand more of what it means. 
I'm always been of the opinion that if I was going to put bet when Jesus is coming back, it's probably going to be in about two billion years. <laughs> I could be wrong, but, but we don't know. Imagine what we'll understand about the faith in two billion years. We'd be the church fathers. <laughs> we really would. And it puts things in perspective. But it's, it's the revelation is there, but we come to understand it more. And just as in 10 years, after Heather and I continue our friendship, after 20 years, we're going to understand each other so much better. And that's what, when God chooses to reveal himself in that dialogue, that we respond to it, and over time we understand the revelation better. But here, though, I'm going to get a question. I'm going to wrap, sort of wrap this up before we move, move on, because I'm watching the time. If God is not obliged to reveal himself to us, if he's not obliged to give himself to us, if he's not obliged to speak to us in the dialogue for us, but we know he does, we know he does, and we believe in faith that he does, I guess that's the real way we look at it, why does he do it? What is the one sole purpose reason for revelation? Or at least the only one that we would say is credible. What's the only real reason? Like God, I may choose to reveal myself to, to any of y'all because I need help. Or because I have an obligation to. Or because I want you to know something. I want you to do something for me. But God doesn't need any of that. He doesn't, God doesn't need us. What, though, is the reason that God reveals himself? Relationship, yeah, but he doesn't need a relationship with us. Who said it? Love. Who said that? Love. The sole reason for a relation is because of love. And so in a certain sense, if we see that God chooses to reveal himself, and we can know through reason logic, he's not obliged to reveal himself because he exists outside of creation. He is independent being. He's not conditioned on any of us. Then the only reason is love. The only reason he created anything is love. He's not obliged to. He chooses to create us. He chooses to reveal himself is that he loves us and ultimately wants to give himself to us. And that, to a great degree, is how we can come to that conclusion John gives us his gospel that God is love. Because we exist. What a deep truth. We exist, God communicates with us, therefore God is love, because it's the only reason that makes sense. That he wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants to show us love. Otherwise, none of it really makes sense. So that's kind of profound and deep, and that's why we can say that Scripture is a love story, that salvation is just a love story of God revealing himself to us and us coming to know that love. And every time we speak about it, though, as we're going to talk about, we're going to use analogies. We can never fully grasp or talk about God. That's more of the philosophical we're going to hopefully talk about when we talk about salvation history and how God reveals himself and what he reveals about his plan and about who we are. But all we're talking about now is that God does reveal himself, why he reveals himself. We're going to be talking about what he reveals and the core of that. In a certain sense, everything we're going to talk about for the rest of the semester or the rest of our time together is what the content of revelation, which particularly is necessary for us to know and to live uh, for our salvation. Does that make sense? So, 
I mean, as I said, this is so, I'm such a perfectionist. I want to get everything together, and I wish I could do better jobs at having five-hour courses, but then really nobody would come. Uh, because, I mean, you realize in the early days of the church, RCIA, this process of becoming a Catholic, took years. Years. We crammed everything in in nine months. So when I made the list of all the classes, like, oh, I can't leave this out. What do I do? You know, uh, so I'm doing my best. But so we're going to pass next time to, the, to understanding scripture. And again, from how God reveals himself, where the Bible came from, how to understand the Bible. You think we're cramming some stuff in today, we're going to really cram it in uh, next time. And then afterwards we have a break um, for, for fall break. So why don't we close with the glory be now. And then we'll have some time for questions before I need to go. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, for the end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.